Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast, brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Each month, this podcast tackles the topics that are important to pulse crop farmers, including market opportunities, market access and trade policy developments, innovative agronomic approaches, transportation, and a whole lot more. My name is Sherry Lynn Phelps. I am the Agronomy Manager with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers, and today I'm with Dr. Shama Chatterton, Research Scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge. Dr. Chatterton is a pulse and special crops pathologist who has been instrumental in helping us identify and monitor Aphanomyces and Fusarium root rots in Western Canada. And she has been working hard to identify solutions. Thanks for joining us today, Shama. Thank you, Sherry Lynn. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about 2020 and root rots. Um, I know our topic today is going to kind of focus on root rots and predicting how to predict the risk going in for 2021. But I think maybe we should talk a little bit about sort of the fields and, and what we saw um, in Saskatchewan and Alberta in this last year. Um, I know of one particular case where there was like a 22 bushel difference from the good and bad areas within a pea field, and that was all related to root rot. So we, we definitely know that there was devastation out there. And I want to recognize that, you know, we are sympathetic with those growers and we're working hard to try to come up with recommendations and solutions. Um, I'm curious if you saw issues in Alberta as well, and if you have any general comments regarding our experiences with 2020. Yes, uh, 2020 was uh, an ideal year for Aphanomyces, uh, ideal for the pathogen, not ideal for us. Um, it was a really good early season moisture year and that we saw a fair amount of rainfall pretty much across the entire prairies in June. Uh, there was some pockets down in southern Saskatchewan that were a little bit drier, uh, but for the most part, we saw heavy rainfalls in Alberta, uh, central Saskatchewan, and a lot of Manitoba. And then in, in many areas, that rainfall continued into July, and then it did get drier in August. But because of that rainfall, um, kind of in that prime June time, which is when we really see Aphanomyces come on strong, we saw a lot of fields a pretty heavily hit this year. Um, now, we didn't go out and do uh, formal surveys this year, uh, but just from driving around, uh, hearing, uh, getting phone calls from producers, and kind of seeing uh, what people were talking about on Twitter, um, it was definitely uh, a difficult year for Aphanomyces. Um, and the other thing to consider was that um, a lot of fields that were put to peas and lentils in 2020 likely had peas and lentils in 2016. And that was also a very wet year, and we saw high levels of aphanomyces in that year as well. So we're seeing um, that carryover and those um, cropping intervals that really become important for aphanomyces, and that's another reason why we saw a lot of uh, root rot in 2020. Okay. So, yeah, we saw 2016, like, two as sort of a common denominator with a lot of fields in Saskatchewan that were bad this past year. Also had peas or lentils in 2016 and, and again, was a, a wet year similar to what you were saying was happening in Alberta. Um, in particular, when we're talking about some of these bad fields, um, what would be kind of, like, Visually, what do they look like? I know that some can be patchy and some it's an entire field, but just want to give the audience a feel for what these really look like when you're out there and seeing the impact. Yeah, what we will often notice 
first um, is yellowing of the shoots that progress upwards. So you might notice a few yellowing leaves um, at the bottom, and then the next time you go to check in in a couple weeks, you'll see that yellowing moved up. Uh, the other thing that we see is fairly sparse, um, not necessarily field establishment, because you can get good emergence, good field establishment, but then you go and look in the field and it looks quite sparse, and that's because you don't get a lot of the branching of uh, the pea stems, so you'll, the the peas will just you know have one or two main stems, and so it won't the canopy won't fill out, and so in that sense it'll look really sparse. And then because of that, you can get a lot of weed patches coming in in these in these areas. So we'll tend to see fields that um, you have quite stunted plants, yellow plants, and very weedy fields. Yeah, so we too saw that that weed impacts in those those thinner, sparser fields as well. Do you have any indication from growers what type of yield loss has been encountered due to root rot? Um, I don't have. I, I haven't had any indication of specific numbers. Uh, certainly, some of the fields that I drove by and looked at, uh, we would see a huge impact on, on, on yield. Uh, you know, some areas you see complete yield loss in a field and then that, that can be um, bumped up by better areas, you know, but on roughly, I would say, you know, we're looking at kind of 30 to 50% yield loss in some of these really heavily hit areas. And I don't know if you have more concrete numbers of what you saw in Saskatchewan. Yeah, I only had that one field that I mentioned that definitely had a 50% yield loss. And and um, I know that, you know, by looking at the crops and talking with growers, that definitely yield impacts are there. Um, any comments on how the dry conditions? So, you know, August, end of July into August, it turned that hot and dry. Do you think that had any implications on um, the severity of the disease in this past year? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the worst weather situations for a phantomyces is a wet spring followed by a dry summer. Uh, and so that's what we saw as well. And what happens is that if the disease comes in early in the season, you get that rainfall in June, the plants are infected pretty early, they never develop a nice, robust root system. And then you get drought conditions and they just don't have the capability to be able to deal with the drought so you kind of get a double whammy with root rot and then drought and that can also really impact yields. Yeah so now now that the season is over in some ways thank goodness for some of these fields there are two questions that growers and agronomists have been asking about a lot uh, regarding root rots. Let's tackle the first question what to do with fields that have had high levels of root rot disease in 2020. What are some things that growers and agronomists can do this fall or winter? Yeah, so the, what we really want to do with these 2020 fields is set the baseline for what's going to happen with those fields down the road. You know, the growing season now is done. Uh, we can't go back and change that. But what we can do is use that information to be able to make decisions um, in four to eight years when you're going to revisit whether you want to put pea and lentils in that field. So it's really important, um, I think, to start preaching to producers, uh, to agronomists to get into the habit of keeping really good records for their pea and lentil crops. Um, you know, make a note, make records of how the crop did 
if there was yellowing spots in the fields where they were maybe located. Um, and then what you can do now is actually go out and sample, soil sample those fields just to get the baseline levels of Aphanomyces or so that you can know for certain that it wasn't a Phanomyces problem. Uh, and so fields that were very heavily infested, those are pretty easy to soil sample from. You can basically go out anywhere in the field and collect a soil sample uh, and then bring it to a testing lab to determine that, yes, you had a Phanomyces and see if you can get a baseline level. Uh, but those fields will have to stay out of pea and lentil for at least six to eight years. There's a few different things to consider on how long the fields have to be taken out of um, a pea and lentil crop. For the fields that were just starting to develop some yellow patches, and often we would see those um, in areas where water collects, along water tracks, uh, side hill seepage, things like that, um, it's important to make note of where those spots were and also to soil test them if you can, because those are going to be um, kind of the key points where aphanomyces will start from the next time you plant pea and lentils. And you also will need to consider whether you have to extend your rotations away from those fields that are just starting to show some of this patchy development. Okay. So to kind of summarize what you said, there's kind of like the four R's. It's like four R nutrient management, but four R's for root rots. Um, recording, you know, the conditions and the baselines of the infection. You want to look at reducing the spore load, revisit those fields before you plant them by maybe doing another soil test and it's all about rotations. So that kind of summarized kind of what can be done for, for those fields that were heavily infected this past year. Yes, that is an excellent summary. Uh, it's just getting into that habit of practicing those four R's for root rot uh, for every pea and lentil field. We've got a new term going now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for that. So let's let's now kind of move on. You mentioned um, soil testing, and I think that'll lead us well into talking about what we can do for this year going into 2021 and trying to predict what fields are high risk and low risk in order to choose where we're going to plant our peas and lentils coming up. So um, how, do, how do we avoid having fields that are highly infected going into 2021? It's so costly to put that crop in the ground and get little return. You know, what are some things that growers should consider about where to plant peas or lentils for next year? And are there some tests that they can be doing that can help them? Yeah, so planning for 2021 is all dependent on your past field history and what happened in that field the last time you planted pea or lentil. Uh, and so that just that reiterates, I guess what I was saying for 2020 fields, how important it is to start keeping those records. Because every time you want to go and plant pea and lentils in a field, you want to go back and review those records and see and look at what happened in that field. Uh, so the last time you had peas, um, you know, presumably if we're, if we're following the rotation recommendations, presumably the last time you had peas in that field would have been um, 2017, if you're, if you're kind of going at the minimum for your rotation, maybe even longer. So you want to see how your fields, you want to look at and think about how your fields did the last time you planted you had peas and lentils in there. Okay. So are there some field um, or some years, I should say, that maybe growers should have 
avoid planting peas and lentils on? Yes. So what's really important uh, that we're finding is that the environment in which you last had peas and lentils in that field is very important and particularly what the precipitation patterns were and whether they had above or below average rainfall. Uh, And so we had a number of wet years kind of going way back and those would be um, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2016 were pretty wet years. So those are maybe, you know, avoid planting peas or lentils again in those years. 2017, 2018, 2019 were actually fairly dry. So hopefully that means that our risk going into 2021 is a little bit lower. Um, Having said that, though, that's just a general um, synopsis or assessment of what precipitation levels were like in Saskatchewan. Uh, You really need to go and look at kind of the specific history of your field in your area. There are some areas that have pockets of moisture where everywhere else has been really dry or vice versa. So you want to um, uh, really dig into those records and see what that, that uh, the environment was like the last time you had pea and lentils in that field. And that makes sense, right? Because if, if you go into those fields that were problematic last time you grow peas, um, whether it's two, three, four years since you grew them, those ones would be higher risk going into this year. So it's not so much about whether it's a two-year rotation or a three-year rotation, but what happened the last time you grew and what that environment was. All complicating the situation. Yes, I know. It's uh, it's not a simple disease to deal with, Um, but what we've seen is that you know, a small patch in a field under really wet conditions can turn into the entire field being infested under wet conditions. For example, one of the fields uh, where I actually do my field trials near Lethbridge, uh, we saw small patches in that field, or the producer noticed small patches in the field in 2011, where he had above uh, moisture. There was kind of some local flooding in that area. He planted peas into it in 2016 and the whole field was completely infested in 2016. We did our field trial there in 2020, another wet year, and we really got no yield. So that was kind of had peas on it, 2011, 2016, 2020, all really wet years. And that's where we really see uh, kind of this devastation occur. So so on top of that, um, let's look at like and talk about kind of the number of times a field may be in peas and lentils. Does that impact the potential risk? Yes, that's another very important factor is how many times that specific field has seen pea and lentil. Um, Unfortunately, we can't break it down into a magic number. Uh, There was some research done many years ago in the early 90s out of Sweden and the Netherlands Um, And they did find, you know, some fields, you could have three occasions of growing peas before you saw Phanomyces become a wreck. Other fields, it was six or more. So uh, it's really hard to break it down and say this is, you know, you've hit this specific number and then you have to stop. Uh, Generally, what we've seen, um, you know, as as a general trend across the prairies is fields that have a 20-year, a 20-year history with pea and lentil, um, are the ones that become a problem. And generally, that would be about five to six times uh, with tear lentil in a field. Uh, now, of course, say if you were doing durum lentil, durum lentil for the past 10 years, then you're going to hit your five kind of if before you might have had a um, 
you're going to hit your five before if you were doing a rotation every four years or something like that. Um, but yes, it's kind of the frequency of peas that's more important than the interval between a crop. And that makes sense, right? The more times you have something growing, the more chance you have to build up that disease pressure. Exactly. And, uh, you know, one of the, the hypotheses uh, that we researchers have just based on the distribution of the Thanoaces is that it is likely um, a native pathogen to Canada. It's not something that was introduced. Um, that every time you put a pea or lentil crop into that field, you're increasing the inoculum level by just a small increment every time that increment goes up until you hit that threshold level. Um, and like I said, we can't determine exactly how many times because, again, it, it appears to be field-specific. Uh, there's other uh, field conditions that can affect it, like whether you're in a high clay soil, you might reach that threshold quick, uh, more quickly. If you have compaction, basically anything that holds the moisture in that soil for, for longer will increase your risk. And then there's other factors that I think people have been trying to study kind of what are what makes a field conducive is what we call it when it becomes uh, kind of rapidly ramps up and becomes conducive to a phanomyces. What makes a field conducive versus maybe suppressive? We haven't found kind of the, the magic answer to that or the, the silver bullet to that question and what separates these fields. Okay. Oh, lots of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked about kind of soil sampling and doing some benchmark based on this past year's experiences is soil sampling prior to going into where you know you're looking at putting peas and lentils a good idea um, and is there things that you need to consider when you're going out and doing those soil tests yes it's absolutely a good idea um, and it would be the number one recommendation um, from myself as a researcher right now would be go out and test that field before you put pea and lentils in it so you know what your risk is going in. Having said that, like I said, nothing is simple with this pathogen and this disease. Um, there are some issues to be aware of with the soil testing. Um, first, there are two different methods to have your soil tested. Uh, one of them is a soil bait method, and that's where um, you submit a fairly large sample of soil. Peas are grown out in that soil. You look at the roots and say whether a phanomyces was present or not. Uh, the other method is uh, uh, DNA extraction followed by quantitative PCR. Um, and in this method, you know, you can still submit a fairly large amount of soil, 500 grams, something like that. But what happens is we take out about 250 to 400 milligrams to be able to do the test and extract the DNA. If you try to add more soil to that, you basically overwhelm the system and you can't get, it, get any DNA. So that's one of the first drawbacks is you're starting with a fairly small amount of soil. Basically, that soil is taken, um, it's ground up with these special beads to try and crack open all the cells that are within the soil. The cells release their DNA, and then we use a special probe to target particularly a phanomyces DNA, and then you can measure how much DNA is in that soil sample to tell you kind of what the starting amount was in your soil. Uh, so those are the two different methods. Um, they each have their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the advantage of the DNA test is that it's very fast. You can usually get results within 24 hours. 
Uh, it's very accurate. It's only going to test for Athanomyces. You're not going to get confused by other things in the soil. One of the disadvantages that we're seeing right now, and that again is causing a lot of challenges, is that we can get a fairly high false negative rate, particularly from dry soils. Uh, so that's uh, just one thing to be aware of, that definitely we recommend a soil test. As the research advances and progresses, I do think a soil test is going to be the foundation for any management strategies. Um, and that would be that I preach that every time you're going to plant pea or lentils, soil test that field. Having said that, we're trying to move towards accurate, reliable DNA testing. We're just not quite there yet. Thank you. You mentioned false negatives. Can you explain to the listeners what that really means? Yeah. So what it means is that, you know, if you submit that soil sample and you'll come back with a negative result, when in fact there was Thanomyces eusporus in your soil. And so if you're using that test result as your only method to predict your risk for 2021 or you're only relying on that, it could mean that based on your soil test, you will think that you're safe and you will go in and plant peas and lentils into that field. So I think it's very important to be aware of the false negative test and also to not just base your risk assessment or your decisions on that soil test. You know, if it comes back as a positive, then it's easy. You know it's positive, right? But if it's negative, then you might have to think a little bit harder about what that means. Uh, and really look at also that field history. Um, and I think in that risk analysis uh, flowchart that you made and that is up on your website, uh, you know, when we look at what's higher risk, you do have listed there a positive test result, but also above average moisture the last time peas and lentils are grown, and also symptoms of peas and lentils the last time they were grown. So you're not just relying on the results of that soil test, to inform your decisions. So what you're saying is if it's you get a send a DNA sample or a soil sample away and it comes back positive, you know it's positive. If it comes back yeah. negative, there's no guarantee that it's really negative and other factors should be considered. Can exactly. can can there be um, when you do do the soil test, you mentioned two different types of the DNA extraction, which it gives you that plus or minus or is quantitative. Um, but you also mentioned the soil bait test. So could you do a combination of the two tests and do labs offer the, both tests? Yes, you absolutely can do a combination of both tests. I don't know if all the labs offer soil bait tests because it is a little more uh, labor intensive and space intensive. You need somewhere to grow up peas. But you can actually do your own soil bait test at home. Uh, it's, it's really quite easy to do. Um, you can take some soil and put it in some small, you know, like little seedling pots that you would use to start your seedlings for your garden or something like that. You could put some soil in there, plant some peas, put them on your windowsill and see what's going to happen to them in three weeks or something like that. Um, and then you could always even send those roots. If you do your own soil bait test, you could always send the roots that you get from that um, from that test to the testing labs to do the DNA. Uh, because I do think at this point, even though the soil bait test is a little more reliable, I think it's not offered as widely 
by the seed testing labs as the DNA-based test is. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. Um, we did a survey of the most of the labs this fall and updated our testing for a Phanomyces document, which lays out sort of all the labs and what their testing capabilities are. And if I remember right, there was only one lab that was offering the bait test, but that may have changed already. So, yeah. you know, that is yeah. a good reference document to, to just even find out what labs are doing testing, period, and then check with the individual labs. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we, from, from myself, from a research perspective, we did really want to move away from the soil bait test just because it is so much more labor intensive. If you're trying to analyze a lot of samples, you need a lot of space, um, which, you know, a lot of these um, seed testing labs don't have. Uh, and so we really want to move towards this DNA test. Like I said, it can be more accurate. It, um, can be much faster. Generally, it's actually is cheaper because it takes less labor. It's just there's challenges. I don't know how many times I can say this. There are just challenges with this pathogen that seem to make every step a little bit more difficult. There's nothing like a kind of a new pathogen that comes out and that's challenging to work with to bring out our frustrations. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so you know, we're we're at the stage. So we've got sort of risk factors that we've talked about, looking at the environment, looking at last time peas or lentils were grown, how many times they've been grown, do a soil test. Um, is there anything else that we should be talking about in terms of other risk factors going into 2021 that growers should be concerned about? Yeah, some of the other risk factors um, are fusarium. Uh, which is another pathogen group. And unfortunately, you know, we always talk about aphanomyces. I always call it our A-list pathogen uh, because it does cause the most damage in the fields. And the fields that we've really seen, um, you know, with a lot, the really damaged fields, it's usually always because of aphanomyces. But we do have another whole disease to worry about, and that's fusarium root rot. Um, and it often comes in along with aphanomyces, and it makes Aphanomyces just a little bit worse. So that's another uh, factor to consider. Um, you know, if you're in kind of tight rotations with cereals, uh, Durham in particular, you might have a higher uh, fusarium level in your field. And then that will, you know, if you also have aphanomyces, combine the two together, that will make the disease problem a little bit worse. So um, having more diverse rotations, uh, longer rotations between a pea and a lentil crop, that aren't just a durum or, you know, aren't just cereal-based will help to maintain uh, those fusarium populations and a below threshold uh, a little bit better as well. Okay. So, so going into 2021, um, we know that there isn't varieties that are resistant to a famyces yet, touch wood, um, hopefully, you know, over the next few years. Is there varieties that are or have better resistance or tolerance to fusarium that may, in in fact, um, help with managing root rot or at least lessen the risk of the two pathogens being there at the same time? Yeah, that, that is something. Um, there's a little bit of resistance to fusarium. Uh, in peas, we see that it's generally, generally related to tannins in the seed coat. So the 
dun or maple peas tend to show some tolerance to fusarium. Uh, now, having said that, we do see that as the plants grow out of seedling stage and you don't get that effect of the tannins anymore, then there's not as big of a difference um, in their uh, resistance to fusarium. Um, but fusarium does usually kind of get a hold at the seedling stage or at the seed to seedling stage. So it, it can help with that. And then in lentils as well, we do see quite a range of tolerance or partial resistance to fusarium. Um, that doesn't seem to be as related to seed coat color, I guess, because kind of the, the tannins and what's What's in lentil seed coats is a little more complicated than what we see in peas, uh, but there is some differences there, and those would probably be good options as well to help reduce the severity that we see from root rots. And again, I think on your on your website uh, you have some uh, results that show what those the tolerances are to uh, to one species of fusarium for both pea and lentil. Yes, uh, thanks for referencing that. We do have a fusarium fact sheet that has some more recent results on variety susceptibility or tolerance, definitely to the fusarium side. Would you like to comment on these seed treatments as well for both Athanomyces and fusarium? Yeah, so for, uh, for seed treatments, uh, for Athanomyces, there is one product that's registered, Intego Solo. It's registered for suppression of aphanomyces, I believe, on both pea and lentil. Um, and then there's a lot of different products that are registered against Fusarium, Pythium, and Rhizoctonia, which are all part of kind of our seed-borne seedling complex. Uh, so what we've seen for uh, aphanomyces suppression is when we've done um, tests or trials with this product, we do see that it does give good early season suppression. Uh, the problem is, is that aphanomyces isn't always an early season kind of seedling disease. So by the time you get those really nice, uh, juicy roots and nice wet conditions in the soil, we're into June and kind of the window for seed treatment efficacy has passed. So we don't see that that provides long-term uh, suppression. And the same can be said for the other seed treatment products. Now, having said that, uh, I do still recommend using seed treatment because you want to get the seedlings through that kind of vulnerable stage to seedling root rots and blights. Those are a whole other issue. You don't want to have those on top of kind of these later season root rot issues. So I think it's still best management practices to uh, use a seed treatment. Okay. Thank you. Um, is there, as we're kind of getting to the end of all the, the factors and kind of questions related to growing and choosing fields for 2021 and for, for peas and lentils, um, do you have any last comments or, or suggestions that we haven't covered? Uh, well, I think the main thing is that there are no in-crop management options for this disease once it hits. So all the decisions do have to be made ahead of time. So choosing the right field to put your pea and lentil crop in 2021 is really going to be key to management. And choosing the right field is based on all these factors that we talked about um, throughout this podcast. Uh, there are some other management decisions that can be considered uh, prior to planting. You know, once you've kind of 
once you think you've chosen a good field, your risk is going to be low. Uh, then there's things that we talked about, like considering uh, seed treatment, consider varieties, choose varieties that are well adapted to your area by referencing um, the regional variety trial guides. Those can be really good indicators of how a certain variety is going to perform in your field. Um, make sure you're starting with good nutrient levels, um, you know, based on the best agronomic practices, uh, soil management, uh, make sure you're not going into compacted fields or, or, or use practices that are going to reduce introducing compaction into that field. That's a lot of things to consider. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's like, let me think if I forgot anything. That was all. <laughs> well, thank you for running through those. And, and uh, just as a follow-up to that, a lot of what we discussed here today is in a fact sheet um, on predicting root rot risk for 2021, and that is also available on the Soft Pulse website. So a lot of what we're talking about is in a print format, and there also is a webinar that was just recently recorded that also, you know, helps us to understand the risks and, and more of what Shama has talked about today. So thank you very much, Shama, for, for your feedback and your discussion on root rots. And hopefully this will help growers and agronomists with their decisions going into 2021 and minimize the impact on root rots. And hopefully Mother Nature is also listening and will give us a good year to have, you know, less problems as well. So thank you. You're very welcome. Always happy to talk root rots. So that wraps up our discussion today. Thanks, Dr. Chatterton, for joining us. Thank you to everyone for tuning in to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast. For more information on predicting root rot risk in your crops, visit the resource section of the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers website at saskpulse.com. This will have recent articles and webinars on this same topic. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Store.